9 as we continue our a series in this wonderful book. Uh, this morning we're, we're coming really to the heart of the letter and uh, in, in some sense to the heart of Christian living. That uh, the things that we talk about this morning are things that we all uh, know about and, and, and wrestle with. It, it, the Hebrew Christians, as you remember, were, were discouraged Christians. They were weary. They were tired. And um, they were thinking about maybe going back to the old Jewish ways. And, and the reader, if you remember, he's just been doing everything in his power to show them the superior beauty and glory of Jesus and, and his work. So um, telling them you've, it's a better covenant. You've got a better high priest. And he does his ministry in a better temple. And um, so you have great confidence. You have you, hope as an anchor for your soul as uh, Jesus has gone before us. And um, so there's, there's so many reasons for exuberance and joy in these believers, and yet uh, they're discouraged. <clears throat> Why is that? Why is that true for us? We know so much about Jesus. Uh, how come we're so often discouraged in our Christian life? How come we're so often wrestling with anxiety and, and fear and shame? Uh, well, the, the, the fact is that it's possible to know uh, all these marvelous things about Jesus, uh, to believe even that Jesus is great and he's sufficient, he's good, he's, uh, he's, he's died for our sins, he's reigning in heaven, and yet still be filled with doubt and fear and discouragement. And how is that possible? Well, one of the, one of the things that the, the writer here is going to point out, it's, it's, this often happens when people live with an ongoing sense of a shamed, guilty conscience. So chapters 9 and 10 are going to be talking about a guilty conscience. And what do we do with a guilty conscience? And so give your attention to God's Word as we pick it up in Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> Now, even the first covenant, that's with Moses, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but that's the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle with its two inner rooms. Of these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. They would, they would set out the bread on the table and they would light the lampstand. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But, one of the most important words in the Bible, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify uh, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people... He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father in heaven, uh, this is a text so rich and full, and we need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it, to receive it, to accept it, to live in its truth. We pray that you would do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Boys and girls, i got a question for you this morning. <laughs> Uh, do you know what a conscience is, boys and girls? Do you know what a conscience is? Uh, we, could use a, we could use an illustration, a physical illustration. When you fall down and you skin your knee, uh, it hurts, doesn't it? And why does, why does it hurt? How does, uh, how does that experience happen? Well, what happens, maybe you know this already, is that there are nerves running throughout your body, and when something happens to a part of your body, those nerves send a message to the brain that something's wrong, and, uh, and so you feel pain. Well, the conscience is kind of like the nervous system for the soul. And so the, the, your conscience uh, tells you when something has gone wrong. It also uh, will tell you when something is good with the soul. So when your, uh, your nerves not only communicate pain, it only communicates how nice it feels when your mom rubs your back. Okay, the, uh, but the soul is like that. The soul is both commu is communicating to us about sort of how it is with our soul. It's the nervous system of the soul. I, um, 
And that's why, boys and girls, when you do something bad, you feel it. You feel bad. You feel like you've done something wrong. That's your, that's your conscience talking to you. I've been reading a, a book by Christopher Ashe called The Joy of a Clear Conscience, Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience. It's a great, it's a great book on this specific issue. And he, he just talks about the soul, uh, the conscience, as the moral self-awareness of the soul. The moral self-awareness that God has given to every single one of you. Uh, you all know uh, what it, you've had experiences with your conscience, either condemning you or assuring you. Uh, when you're charged with doing something wrong and you didn't do it, it's not just your intellect that says you didn't do it. Your conscience says, no, before the Lord, I'm not guilty of that. And when you do something wrong, uh, your conscience is the one talking to you. Uh, Chris Frash um, it uses this illustration about how the conscience exists separate from the intellect. In fact, we find that our mind and our conscience are often arguing with each other. So he says, suppose I'm thinking of doing something very selfish with my money. I've just received an inheritance or a bonus from work, and I'm thinking of using it to buy something that I really want, uh, something that's it's not really necessary. Uh, it's entirely actually self-centered, but I really want it. And yet I find something like a little voice inside of me saying, don't you think there's something better you could do with that money? You could give some of it away. You could share uh, some of it with your family, you know. And he says, I don't, I don't want to hear that little voice. I wish it would be quiet. Frankly, it annoys me. And yet there it is. And maybe you've had those dialogues with your conscience. There's something that you really actually want to do. But your conscience is standing in the way and you just wish it would be quiet and let you get on with it and, and maybe you try to justify the actions to your conscience. Well, that's what our conscience, that's how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be sort of uh, that voice inside of us that reminds us there is actually a moral standard and that we will be held accountable to a moral standard that when we do wrong things, we've actually done something wrong. Chris Frash, he just asked the question, what does a conscience do? What does a guilty conscience specifically do? And he gives these answers. He says, for one thing, a guilty conscience never forgets. Isn't that true? If I ask you this morning to share, uh, if I ask you, what is your most shameful secret? What's, the, what's the, the thing that weighs on your conscience the most? You would be able to tell me what it is in great detail even if it happened decades ago. Why? Because a guilty conscience never forgets. Even if you want to forget, your conscience won't let you. And even if no one else knows about it, your conscience knows and your conscience reminds you. Our guilty conscience, secondly, makes us want to hide in shame. If you remember Adam and Eve in the garden, and uh, they do what God said thou shalt not do, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. And they did, and, and they went and they hid. And God comes and he says, Adam, why are you hiding? And, and Adam says, well, I, I was naked and afraid, and so I hid. And, and God asked this question, who told you you were naked? And the answer, of course, is his conscience told him he was naked. His, his conscience was screaming at him. God is coming, and you are un, you're uncovered. You're exposed. Hide, hide. His conscience is screaming at him. And that's exactly what a guilty conscience uh, 
wants to do. And, and, and it makes us want to hide ourselves. There's, a, there's a, an inner fear that borders on panic that if, if people really knew us, if, if they really knew what we have done or, or what we're doing, that we would be shamed, we would be uh, expelled, rejected, condemned. We cannot bear exposure. That's what our conscience says, our guilty conscience. Well, living in that, in that, with that guilty conscience, third, makes us angry and restless, bitter people. When Cain murdered Abel, God said part of his judgment would be that he would be a restless wanderer on the earth. And for the rest of his life, that's exactly what he was, um, always on the move, never at peace, never at rest, Never, no shalom in his life. Because there was no, there was no, there was no dealing with his, his crime, his sin. Well, some of you know exactly what that's like. You're just not a restful person. There's not shalom. There's not peace. You never feel at rest. You're always, you're always on the move in some way, emotionally, mentally, maybe even physically. Fourth, a guilty conscience makes us anxious and afraid. John Flavel, in uh, his book, Keeping the Heart, says, It is guilt upon the conscience, conscience that makes cowards of our spirits. The righteous are as bold as a lion. But a guilty conscience is more terrified by imaginary fears than a pure conscience is by real ones. Isn't that interesting? A guilty conscience is more terrified by imaginary fears. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? I'm afraid that's going to happen. Then a pure conscience is terrified by a real danger, a real fear, something that's actually happening. Flavel says, a guilty sinner carries a witness against himself in his own bosom. There's that little voice that's constantly saying, um, you're flawed, you've failed, you are, you are guilty, you are perverse, you are a full of shame, um, hide. On the flip side, a clear conscience is one of the, one of the greatest blessings in life. It, it just, just think about the difference it makes of, of where your conscience is. Uh, a guilty conscience can be so overwhelmingly painful um, that it will drive people, it, it drives people to take their life. Uh, Judas killed himself uh, because his conscience was, was screaming at him about his sin and, and, and condemning, condemning, and condemning, and, and, and so he took his life, and people still do, just to quiet the conscience. On the flip side, um, a, clean, a clean conscience uh, allows people to sing as they're being martyred. A clean conscience allows people to be crucified like Peter was, as tradition has it, with joy. Stephen being stoned to death, praising the Lord. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being so confident in, your, in yourself, in your conscience, that your conscience is at such peace that as death, the thing that, that we tend to fear the most, as death comes to you, you're singing you're rejoicing. Do you ever notice some Christians who just seem to be more stable, more joyful, more honest, humble, 
more patient in trial, even, even rejoicing in the, in the face of hard, painful circumstances? Have you ever just wondered, how do, how do people do that? How do they do that? Well, one of the answers is, is a, clean, a clean conscience. The, the inner voice of condemnation has been silenced. They don't live, you see, in the courtroom of their accusing conscience, but they, they've learned to live in the living room of God's forgiveness and grace and love. So they feel accepted. They believe that they're loved. They experience that love. It's been poured out into their heart. And there's many of you this morning that, that wish you could feel that way too. Well, how do you get that? Well, most people think you get it by being good. So if, if you got a bad conscience by being bad, doing bad things, then the way to get a good conscience is by doing good things. And so you're going you're gonna to turn over a new leaf and you're going you're gonna to really make efforts to pray more and to read your Bible more. You're going to be engaged in church. You're going to try to, to get rid of some sinful patterns People who believe this are very busy people, very active people, and very sincere people. But it never works. It can't work. You see, the conscience is not just a subjective experience. It's not just how you feel when you feel guilt or shame. It, it's, it's both a subjective experience and it's a, a sign of objective truth. Just, just the way the, the nerves in your body, when you feel pain, it's it generally means that there's some objective thing that's happened. There's a wound somewhere or, or something's not wrong somewhere and that's objectively true and you could, you could wish you didn't feel that way but until you take care of the objective reality behind the pain, you're not, it, it's not going to go away. And so the fact that you see our conscience accuses us is in, because we are guilty. We've actually done things objectively wrong, awful things shameful things. We have failed. We are, we are moral failures in and of ourselves. We, we failed in the most fundamental way in that we've, we've offended the God who made us in his image. And we've done that both through Adam and Eve, our, our, our first parents, but, but most of us don't lie awake at night um, bemoaning uh, their sin. We, we, we bemoan the effects of it. But your conscience is talking to you specifically about your sin, about your lies and, and your sexual immorality and your anger, your impatience, your drunkenness, whatever it might be. And see, no matter how good you try to be, your conscience knows you're not good enough. It's not going to be sufficient. The, the labors of your hands cannot fulfill the law's demands. And those who think that it can um, are, are just through, through pride self-effort, trying to squelch their conscience, but you know what, in the quiet moments when they're really honest, all the fear is still there, all the anxiety, all the shame, all the guilt, it's still there. They just hope that no one sees. There's one way, friends, and one way only to find the true joy of a cleansed conscience, and that way is you have to receive it as a gift. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, as this writer is writing to these discouraged Christians, he, he wants them to experience the actual joy of a cleansed conscience. Now, there's, there's different ways to proceed 
Uh, through these verses, one way, uh, there is so much Old Testament history, uh, and, the, and the writer is writing, remember, to Hebrew Christians who, um, who would know all this history. They would know exactly what he's talking about, and it would be profitable uh, to just unpack verse by verse exactly what he's saying. I'm not going to do that, in part because the author himself doesn't do that. He says uh, in verse 5, we cannot go into these things now. Right? He's got a time limit as well. He's got, he's got a scroll, and it's running out of room, and he's got to, he's got to get the message across. So he says, we're not going to go into this now. I just want to remind you of these things, that there was a tabernacle that had a, a, a first room and then a second room, the holy place and the most holy place. And, and um, in brief, you see, he says, I just want to remind you that the Mosaic sacrificial system was never able to deal with the guilt of the conscience. Uh, that tabernacle was evidence that something was not yet fixed, that, that sinners could not yet go into the presence of a holy God. Verse 8, if you notice in your Bible. Uh, by this, these two rooms, uh, the Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. That first room exists as a barrier. The tabernacle is not a, uh, an inviting place. The tabernacle has huge signs on it that say, don't come near. You're not allowed here. God is there in His holy, in His holy, most holy place, and if you uh, if if you dare to come near, you will die. Why? Because you're sinful. Your sins have separated you from God. The temple is evidence of the problem, and the writer says, as long as that first barrier, that first room stands there, it just tells us that the way is not yet opened into the most holy places. Also, you have there the ministry of blood. You see, the, the mosaic system points out the problem with, with this incredible ministry of, of blood. Uh, if, if you look at verse 18 with me, verse 18 of chapter 9, he says, The, the first covenant was inaugurated, uh, was, even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Not even the first, I'm sorry. Verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Boys and girls, imagine that. You go to church and the priest uh, has a big bowl of, of blood there and he takes a, a branch uh, with hyssop. It's a hyssop branch, so it's got uh, um, small little fine things on the end that can kind of soak up the blood. And boys and girls, he would take that and dip it in a bowl and then he'd walk uh, past the congregation and he'd sprinkle the blood on them. Can you imagine that? What would your parents say? You got blood all over your nice church clothes. That's what, that's what the priest would do. He would sprinkle the people with blood. And then he'd sprinkle the altar with blood. He would Everything is sprinkled with blood, he says. And he would say, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And he would sprinkle the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, many people are very troubled by this. I, that This just seems so barbaric, so primitive. Well, you see, there's a very clear message in all this blood. And the message is that the problem of sin is deadly serious. It, 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 it truly requires a death. The soul that sins must die. We live in a culture averse to the idea of death. Um, but, and so we just sort of live our lives 
not mindful of it. There's one of the benefits of growing up in a, in a former time when there were farms. Um, because if you ask boys and girls today, where did the chicken nuggets come from? What are they going to say? McDonald's or Meyer? That's all they know. Um, I, uh, there was something a little bit more honest about uh, my childhood, th- th- about the whole process, actually, because I remember um, uh, mom saying, uh, we're going to have chicken tonight. And so um, dad would go out and he would take a chicken and uh, lay its uh, head on a block of wood and take the hatchet and whack the head off. And the chicken would flop around until all the blood was gone. And then we would take it and put it in a pot of boiling water. And then we'd pluck it and gut it and put it in the frying pan. You see, and I remember as a child um, eating my chicken, thinking this morning that thing was walking around with all the other chickens, and now it's given its life so that we can eat. Now, you might say, well, what does that have to do with our text? Well, you see, one of the great blessings of the Mosaic Covenant with all of its rivers of blood is that it does not offer cheap answers for sin. And that's important because, you see, your conscience generally knows the truth and tells the truth and needs the truth. Generally. Not always. It's not infallible. But it needs the truth. When your conscience is operating correctly, then then you feel guilty because you are guilty and your conscience will not accept a cheap solution. That's why when you do something awful and your friends come and say, it's okay, you didn't really mean it. Who, who says, gosh, I'm so glad you said that. I feel so much better now. Nobody says that. Because your conscience knows better. In fact, your conscience is telling you, yeah, I think actually you did mean it. So there's no, your conscience won't accept a cheap solution. Well, there's nothing cheap about the Mosaic sacrifice. You bring the lamb or the goat or the bull and the priest takes that animal and pulls its head back and slits its throat. And, uh, and so the animal now uh, with eyes full of terror stumbles to its knees and struggles and kicks as uh, death slowly takes over as its blood is being poured out in steaming pools of blood on the ground. Right there in front of you. There's nothing cheap you see or flippant about it. It is a graphic word picture concerning the seriousness of sin. Sin does not have easy solutions. Now the problem with the Mosaic system is while it could graphically point to the seriousness of the issue, it couldn't resolve the issue. The goat can't stand in my place. It, it can't atone for my sin. Not truly. It's a life, but it's not a human life. It, it can't stand for me, the moral agent who knew exactly what he was doing when he sinned against God. The life of that goat, you see, it just lacks the weight to pardon the reality of human sin. You can slaughter animals all day long, and your conscience hasn't objectively been cleansed, not by that blood. So verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And the inability, you see, of the Mosaic system holds for the inability of every human effort. And people do all sorts of things to try to cleanse their conscience. 
Uh, John Piper says this, we know that our conscience is defiled. We are defiled by pride and self-pity and bitterness and lust and envy and jealousy and covetousness and apathy and fear. And we can cut ourselves. We can throw our children into the sacred river. We can give millions of dollars to the United Way. We can serve in the soup kitchen at Thanksgiving or hundreds of other forms of penance. And the result will always be the same. The stain remains and death still terrifies. And that's the world we live in. But what if there actually was a way to cleanse the conscience? What if there was a life so staggering in its significance that it could accomplish what nothing else can do? What if there's a, a sacrifice that, um, of a life that could actually satisfy the demands of God's law, that could, that could actually um, make us clean? You see, what if there was a pool of blood that was so inestimably precious that no matter how defiled or how perverse your sins have been, no matter how multiplied your iniquities are, that, that that blood could actually be sufficient payment for all of it, satisfying not only the court of divine justice, but thereby also stilling and quieting the court of personal conscience. And the, and the author says, well, that's, that's what I'm telling you. There is such a sacrifice If you look again at verse 11 and following in your text, but when Christ, again that beautiful word, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that's not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places in heaven, not by means of blood or by the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the the writer is saying, you see, God has actually accomplished something in the death of his son, externally and internally in regards to the human conscience. Externally, he has dealt with the objective reality that our conscience has been pointing to. The conscience says, do you not know? There is a standard, the holy law of God, and anyone who fails to keep that standard is under sentence of condemnation. That's what our conscience tells us. Well, the writer tells us that the death of Jesus Christ and the shedding of his own blood has secured an eternal redemption. Verse 12. Christ has secured, means he's obtained, he's accomplished, past tense, completed action. There's nothing more that needs to be done. If you go and buy a, buy a car, and if you have the ability to go and buy that car with cash, um, you'll put the money on the table, and the dealer takes it, and he, and he has you sign some papers, and you walk out, you own the car in full. You have secured it. Nothing left to do to buy that car. You see, friends, Jesus isn't making payments on your redemption He made one payment, one time, once for all. And the only possible payment, of course, was his own life, his blood. 
That's the payment. So there's, there's nothing left. There's nothing left for you to, to pay. Now, how did that happen? What, and, and what did he gain by it? What, did he, what, what were the benefits of that death, that, that actual objective death of Jesus Christ in his body on a Roman cross? What are the benefits? Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what he gained was everything your soul most deeply longs for. He gained entrance for you into the most holy place. He gained, he gained uh, an eternal inheritance for you in the presence of God. He, he gained for you entrance into the city of God. He gained citizenship in a new heaven and a new earth. He he has, you see, um, allowed you to enter into the living room of God's grace and love, and you can live there. Now, who, for whom is this blessing? It says, for those who are called. Tonight, we're going to look at the doctrine of effectual calling. But what it means in short here is that every single person who hears the gospel message as it's proclaimed and receives Christ with repentant faith. Everyone who says, that's me, I'm the sinner, and that's Jesus, he's the Savior, and I believe on the basis of God's word that if I come confessing my sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone, that I shall have him. And it is the Spirit of God that makes that happen, who gives that faith. That's the effectual call. Well, for everyone who has that experience... The writer says, you have received the promised eternal inheritance. Well, how can you know for sure? And the answer is because a death has occurred, past tense, that redeems you from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Have you sinned under the first covenant? Have you sinned against the law of God? Yes, you have. You have in a thousand, thousand ways. And yet a death has occurred that redeems you. You see, the author just paints such a beautiful picture. He wants you to see Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the real man, who, having died on that cross and rose again from the grave, now enters the temple of heaven, the dwelling place of God. And, and like all the priests of old, he does not come without blood. But the blood that he comes with is not the blood of an animal, it's his own and he offers that blood before the, the court of divine justice. And, and there you see at that, in that eternal altar of God, the, 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 the eternal mercy seat, he, he gives his blood to cover our sin and to wash away our shame. To wash away our sin. Truly, actually, not symbolically. It's not a metaphor. You see, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the objective, real shedding of the blood of Christ for your sin, bearing your sin, and in your place, that is able to objectively remove all guilt and shame from you, the sinner, forever. It is not an analogy. It's, it's not a sign of something else. It is the reality 
And because you see the objective reality of Jesus' blood has been applied to the objective reality of your guilt and sin and shame before God himself in the heavenly temple, you can absolutely live in the subjective experience of a cleansed conscience. The writer talks about that. That this purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And there's some debate about exactly what does dead works here mean? I'm not going to get lost in those weeds, but just to say, I, I think what the writer is saying, that there are works that do not flow from a living union with Jesus Christ and a living faith in Jesus Christ. And that those dead works, then you see, are, in a, are attempts on the part of the sinner to, to purify his conscience. Doesn't spring from um, what God has already accomplished. It's attempting to get God to do something. And so um, maybe you've experienced this in your own life. You, 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 you try to live the Christian life. You try to do good things, but there's, there's no joy in it. You don't enjoy reading your Bible. You don't enjoy praying. You don't enjoy serving. You actually don't really love people. It's all tedious to you. And so you try, you engage, and it, and it just wears you out. You get, you get no joy or peace in any of it. Well, there could be many reasons for that, but, but one could be, what, what are you actually doing? Are you, are you trying to build a spiritual resume? Are you, are you trying to atone for your sin? Are you, is that what's going on? You're just, you're just trying to be good so that um, you hope that that's enough, that's sufficient, that'll wash away the stain? It won't work. And you're just going to be a very busy, irritated, confused, disappointed, discouraged person. This is, uh, I think, we, we, we all experience this at times. The, the, this idea of, of Christians who are plagued with fear and anxiety and guilt and shame intrigues me because I've wrestled with this my whole life. I know what shame and guilt and fear feels like, and that shouldn't surprise any of you. And I know you know what it feels like. You want to talk a universal language? Have an honest conversation with somebody about their shame, about their guilt, about their fear. Are you ready to die? Now, how is that possible? That we can say we believe in these objective realities and still struggle with guilt and shame and fear. So, so we say we believe all guilt and shame has been washed away. We, we believe that. And yet in our life, we've got all these dead works. We've got this anxiety, this, this shame, this, this feel of constantly not being enough, not being good enough, afraid to, that people might really find out who we are. How, how, how do you have those two things? Well, there's, there's such a thing in, in the physical realm, of course, I'm talking about nerves and, it, you, know, you know, it's possible for people to have phantom pain. It, it, it's possible for people to have uh, limbs amputated and, and yet the, the arm that's no longer there, well, the brain is saying there's, there's something wrong and there's excruciating pain in the arm that doesn't exist. And, or people can have uh, great pain and, and the doctors can simply not find any cause for it. It's phantom pain. And, and you, have to, you have to take medicine for phantom pain because it's real pain. But it's medicine that's really dealing with your brain. It's not dealing with anything in the arm because the arm doesn't exist. 
Well, in the same way, you see, there's phantom fear, and there's phantom shame, and there's phantom guilt in the lives of Christians. And there's a medicine for phantom guilt and phantom shame, but you have to take it. Do you understand that it's phantom guilt to feel guilty for a sin that you've committed in the past that's already been forgiven and forgotten by God? There's, there's no guilt remaining there. Look, look, look on the table of divine justice. Look at the altar before the throne of God. There's, there's, no, there's no offense. There's no guilt. There's, there's only the righteousness of Jesus Christ freely given to you. The guilt is actually gone. The shame is phantom. But you have to take the medicine. And the medicine is continually receive by faith what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross, what he objectively actually accomplished. You have to receive that truth that in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, the atonement was sufficient and the guilt has been pardoned and the shame has been washed clean. You have to take the medicine which is simply the gospel, and, and, do, and then to believe it. And then you see, when you do that, you can finally confess, not just that, that you feel like a failure, you can say, no, 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 I am a failure. I am a moral failure. I, th there are flaws in my character. I love things I should hate. I desire things I should loathe. I do and say and think things that are completely contrary to the will of God. But Jesus Christ has secured my redemption. Jesus Christ has pardoned my guilt. Jesus Christ has cleansed my stain. And no matter what my conscience might say to me, I can answer my conscience with gospel truth. Yes, that is true. Well might the great accuser roar of all the things that I've done, right? I know them all in thousand more. Jehovah knoweth none. But friends, you see, it is the receiving of that. It's not just the intellectual assent to it. There are people in the church, there are people sitting here this morning, you intellectually agree with all of this. But if you are continuing to labor under shame and guilt and fear and you're dreadfully if afraid of being exposed before God or before men, then just ask yourself, have I actually accepted the, the objective reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished? Do I really believe that Jesus Christ was willing to stand in the place of murderers and thieves and liars and adulterers just like me? And, and, and do I believe that the blood of Jesus Christ actually atones and covers for all my sin? That Jesus Christ now exists in the presence of God on my behalf. Verse 24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, pleading our, the justice of our case. Father, the blood has been shed. The sin has been atoned. It's washed away. And the Father delight, delights to pronounce the sentence of innocence, righteousness on you in Christ. Piper says this is God's way of saying, come you dirty ones, you defiled and deeply evil ones. Come you who have soiled yourselves, who've been stained by the sins of others. Come to my heaven, for my son is there and he has not died in vain. He stands guard over my holy place, not to keep you out, but to make you clean so that you can be with me in perfect holiness forever. But you need to come. Friends, I'll wrap this up. Um, this is... 
This is where so many of us live. Every single person in this room who's beyond the age of five, I suppose, right? You have things in your life of which you are deeply ashamed. Some of you, it's past sins, sexual immorality or, or an addiction of some sort. Some of you have had an abortion. You'd be terrified if people knew. Some of you are still involved in secret sin, pornography, drunkenness, gambling, lying. You come to church and you sing the songs, but you sense deeply I'm not like these other people. Some of you experience deep shame because of what was done to you. Maybe you suffered sexual abuse or some other form of, of great evil committed against you. And you feel stained by it and you don't know how to get free of it. This is just, this is just reality. You'd love to come clean, all of us would, um, would love to come clean. But you see, it's our, it's our pride, it's our fear, it's our shame. It just keeps us silent and keeps us bound. And so we, we just keep trying to do the best we can. We just need to recognize that here, right here in West Michigan, the disfiguring scars of guilt and sin and shame discourage us and burden us and weigh us down. For many people, it's just not, it's, it's not possible for them to think that God could love them, that the sin is too grievous. And so there's so many who do not experience, you see, the blessing of, a, of cleansed conscience, who don't experience the love of God, who, would, who will say, I just wish I could know that God loves me. And why do they say that? It's not because the cross didn't happen. They say it because their fear and their shame and their, and their, uh, their, their guilt won't, won't allow them to believe it's possible. And it, 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 their, their fear, you see, they, they hope it's possible to come clean, to be known and to be loved. They wish they could believe that, but deep inside, it, it just seems so hard to believe it. But, but, but you have, have you ever had the experience where you're wrestling with your conscience and you, and you thought, I just wish I could tell the truth. I, could do, I wish I could just tell somebody what I'm wrestling with. So why don't we? Oh, because of fear and shame and pride. Well, friends, the church of Jesus Christ is the place for people to tell the truth. It's not, it's not the place for people to come and work on their moral resume so that uh, hopefully as you work at it hard enough and long enough, you'll be able to have peace in your soul. It's, that's just not what the church is. The church is a place for sinners who've sinned grievously and still do to come and be exposed as sinners. Do you recognize that your presence here this morning exposes you immediately? If you're here this morning... Unless someone dragged you in here, you're here um, because you recognize that, that you are not what you're supposed to be. And, and if you're here in the church of Jesus Christ and you're here before the cross of Jesus Christ, you see that cross stands not just to save you, but first of all to convict you. That cross stands as a testimony that you have sinned so grievously before a holy God that nothing less than the death of his son was necessary in order to rescue you. So if you think you're here this morning and you're hiding, it's just a lie. Don't believe it. You're exposed right now. You are that wicked, and so am I, that there's nothing else possible that could have covered your sin than the death of the son of Jesus Christ. But you see, the cross also tells us that there's a place where we can actually be cleansed. 
objectively before the throne of God and subjectively in our own hearts. The church is the one place in all the world where you can actually come clean, not just spill your guts, but actually be cleansed, actually receive the medicine and hear the good news and, um, and, and experience the objective reality as a subjective truth that no matter how great your sin, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient. All that needs to happen, friend, is you need, you need to come and take the medicine. You have to take the medicine. But it's such good medicine. The gospel, all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. And, and the way that happens in the church, in the Christian church, the way that happens is by confession and by community. It happens as we together um, hear the gospel message, and then it happens as we together confess our sins to each other where we have the ability to say to a somebody, this is what I am by nature. This is what I've done. This is my guilt. This is my shame. As long as you keep it completely to yourself. Well, I don't think you're going to experience the freedom of a joyful conscience. Remember what Paul says? This is, a, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ died for sinners. How do I know? Because he died for me and I'm the chief. I used to be a blasphemer, insolent. I hated God. I hated his people. I was dragging people. All the things that Paul wishes he could bury and hide, he doesn't. He, he brings them forward to exalt in, in the grace of God and, and, and saying that God was so patient as, to me as an example that he's absolutely able and willing to be patient with you. We have communities here at Harvest Church that are where truth can be spoken. We have men's groups and women's groups and Bible studies and small groups and counselors there are avenues for you to come and tell the truth about you, tell the truth about your shame and your guilt and your fear, and to come and, as you confess your sin, have the gospel applied and know, you see, that it's possible then that you actually can be known and you can be loved as the love of Jesus Christ flows through some other person, some other brother and sister to you, and you're embraced and encouraged. We do that in confession. We do that in community. We do it together. Friends, we have a choice to make with, with a text like Hebrews chapter 9. We've got a choice to make with the reality of our guilt and sin and shame, our, our guilty consciences. We can either just decide to pretend that it's okay when it's fundamentally not okay and just keep doing the Christian life, or we can, we can actually come to Christ in a new way. Now, I'm not saying you don't believe in Jesus. I'm just saying, um, do you have a clean conscience because of Jesus? Are you able to simply say, yes, all that my conscience is saying is true, but all that the gospel says is even more true. All that Jesus Christ has done is more than sufficient to wash away all the sin, all the guilt, and all the shame. Pray that God would do that in your heart. And then, and then if you need to start talking to someone, would you please, please do that? God did not intend you to live in fear and guilt and shame. Not when his son went to a cross to deliver you. Let's honor the Lord by taking the medicine. Amen. God in heaven, this is a heavy message. Um, because we live as people who have shameful things in our lives. And so often we... We're worn out trying to remove that stain and nothing works and... And so often we accept believing the gospel and yet not experiencing the joy of a cleansed conscience. Lord, I thank you that we can together admit the truth about ourselves, that we, we have failed, 
And we still fail. We've sinned grievously. We still do. And yet there is a sacrifice that stands that's more than able to wash us clean. Lord, I pray that we would actually receive this gospel truth and we would have the freedom to share our, to confess our sin and to share our story with someone who can assure us that yes, even our story, our sin is washed and cleansed and and we can walk in the freedom and joy that you mean for your people to have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this church would be a place of deep healing for sin and guilt and shame as the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is received in faith with humility and then with joy. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.